Um, I don't know where you guys stand on some of the stuff that's been coming our way through the news outlets and what's happening in um, Washington, D.C., but there comes a point when enough is enough, and it just kind of makes you almost sick to your stomach to watch any more of the stuff that's going on. There's an irritant to it that probably wasn't there 20 years ago. Maybe it was, and I wasn't just uh, as in tune to it, but it really seems to me like the, the men and the women that have been elected to go to Washington, D.C. as a congressman, congresswoman, or a senator, and to do the job of governing our country, seems to have, they seem to have lost their way in what governing looks like. So now we have a bunch of people who seem to have a great propensity for lying. They have a hard time telling the truth. And, and, and one side, one party over here will say something horrible or nasty about the other party, and then the other party is going to retaliate and say something about them. And all they're trying to do in this little battle back and forth of throwing grenades at each other, verbal grenades, and, and trying to blow them up, is they're trying to make the other side look incompetent and like a bunch of fools. And that's what they're just trying to do. And so what happens is, is then all of a sudden you have special counsel that's set up to try and work their way through all the minutiae to find the truth buried in a pile of cow poo. And so they have to come, they're sworn in, they take an oath to tell the truth. And they start to speak, and you wonder, are they really telling the truth? And so what they do is they get somebody else that they swear in as a witness to the other person saying, I'm going to tell you the truth that this person is actually telling the truth. And then when it's all kind of said and done, lo and behold, the witness who was supposed to tell the truth about the person who was telling the truth wasn't telling the truth about them. it gets kind of discouraging because they're getting paid a lot of money to just horse around and try and win the next election. They're not there to do what we've paid them to do. And it's, it's very discouraging. It's very undermining everything. And the problem is, is that all we really want is for people to be honest and to tell the truth, to give a witness or a testimony that is truthful, that we can believe. When we take a look at what John, the apostle, wrote, because he wrote three different things in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John, and that's the historical account of what Jesus was doing while he was here on planet Earth as he was... um, growing and raising disciples and teaching them and giving them instructions as to how to grow a church when he left. That's the Gospel of John. Then he wrote these three short little letters to the church because, as often happens, the church can get caught up in all kinds of foolish talk about things that really don't matter about anything. 
And so John, being the last apostle, when he wrote uh, his letter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, when he wrote those letters to the church, he was the last living apostle left on planet Earth. He was an old man. And he, he had to come alongside the church because there were things that were trying to be brought into the church. There was doctrine and, and bad theology. There was heresy that was creeping in through the teaching of others into the church. They weren't adhering to the gospel of Jesus. They weren't listening to what the Spirit was saying. They were listening to another spirit, a spirit that tickled their ears. It sounded good. It made them feel good about life, but it didn't point them to Jesus. And so John took it upon himself, as Peter and Paul did, to bring letters to the church to help them to stay on course, remembering who Jesus is and what Jesus did. So this morning we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at um, verses 6 through 12. But we're just going to walk through a verse at a time or a couple. So here's the first verse that we're going to look at, verse 6. It says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Now, okay, I want you to, if you've got your Bible with you or if you're taking notes, understand that the word testify is going to come up somewhere around eight times in these short six verses. So John's really coming at it from the, from the understanding that we're almost stepping into a court of law where there is going to be testimony given about the reality of who Jesus is. When Jesus said, this is who I am, he meant this is who I am. But what has happened in, in the churches is there's been a teaching that's been coming in and, and trying to show that there's a different Jesus rather than the one that Jesus proclaimed to be and the gospel writers wrote about. So now John's coming back and he's going to refute that. And so he's calling up people who he's going to call up the witness and the testimony. And it's kind of bizarre because he starts off with the water and the blood. Now, it's, it's difficult for us sometimes to get our head wrapped around it because usually what happens with the gospel writers and with the apostles, when they're writing a letter, their whole purpose behind it is to bring clarity to the people that are receiving the letter. But when we read this part of this letter and it talks about the water and the blood, it can bring some confusion because we're that far removed, 2,000 years removed from what John was writing about and writing about what John saw with his own eyes and experienced with his own life. He walked with Jesus. He had the dust of Jesus' sandals kicking up onto his robes as Jesus taught him what it meant to be a disciple. And so John has first-hand knowledge. He has clarity about everything. And the church has gone into a place where there, there is confusion about who Jesus is. And so Jesus is bringing the testimony of the water and the blood to bring clarity to them. But for us, we might get a little bit confused because we're going like, what does he mean by the water and the blood? Does that mean that like when he was born, his mother's water broke and then she gave birth and there was blood along with that? 
Or is it some kind of other thing that's out there that we don't know about? It's, it's, it's a mystery that has been kept silent for years and we're just going to be revealed to us? It's, it's not that difficult to understand. Because when we think about Jesus' life, the areas that bring a testimony about who he is, we can go back into the Gospels, we can explore it, and we can find out exactly what John is talking about. So when John comes to this part, and he's talking about the eyewitness of, or the testimony of the water, he's referring to what happened with Jesus when Jesus went and met his cousin, John the Baptist, down at the River Jordan, because John the Baptist, if, if you remember back in the Gospels, God sent John the Baptist, and he was called the, the Waymaker. In other words, he was preparing the way for the Messiah to come. Everything that John the Baptist talked about, everything that Jesus, John the Baptist did, was pointing to the Messiah who was coming right behind him. And John the Baptist said, there's one who's coming whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. And that person shows up and John the Baptist knows that, it's, that Jesus is the Messiah because the Holy Spirit confirms it in his heart. And so he's looking at his, his cousin, Jesus, and he's going like, dude, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should baptize me. I'm not worthy to baptize you. And Jesus goes like, wait a minute, hold on. You're going to baptize me because this is going to fulfill all the prophecy that was talked about me in this regard. And so John the Baptist goes like, okay, let's do that. And so what we do is we pick it up in Matthew chapter 3, and here's what Matthew wrote as he was observing this time. It says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately... He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So it's at the baptism of Jesus in the water. Jesus went to be baptized because the prophecies that were made about Jesus coming down and leading the people into baptism of water, which will then consequently be led by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it comes along, and that's what Jesus does, and the water testifies that this is truly Jesus, the Son of God. There's a, a magnificent thing that's being done right here before the eyes of the people. Because when Jesus comes up out of the water, he was baptized, he went in, he was immersed into the water, and when he came up out of the water, the heavens opened up. Remember, we just sang about that, open up the heavens, because we want to see Jesus. We want the Spirit of God to fall on this place, to to ignite a fire in our hearts. Well, the heavens opened up, and, and then the Spirit of God came as a dove, and landed on Jesus, and then the Father said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That's the testimony of baptism right there. It, in, it brings to, to, to the place where we see God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit all together at one moment in, in Jesus' earthly ministry, and it's all confirming that He, Jesus, is the Messiah, the Son of God. 
And so the water stands as a witness of Jesus being who he claimed to be. Notice that John brings the evidence of Jesus to us. He says in in this verse, verse 6, after he says water and blood, he says, not by the water only, but it's water and the blood. Now, let me tell you why he wrote that in there, why he made that distinction. Because there were those people who, were, who, were, who had infiltrated into the church and they were teaching a different gospel. And what they were saying is, is that Jesus, the guy that walked up to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist, he was just a man, just like you and me. There was nothing special about him. There was nothing that set him apart from anybody else. He was as normal as normal gets. And then when he was baptized, then at that moment, the spirit of the Messiah descended and covered Jesus. Does that make sense? That's bull butter, as they would say, horse roar. That's not the truth, because Jesus, when he was born, he was born fully man and fully God. He was born as the Messiah. He didn't become the Messiah when the spirit descended upon him. He was already the Son of God, the Messiah. What, the, what the, this teaching was saying is it was just by the water that he became the Messiah. And then what they would claim after that is that when Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, went to the cross, before he was killed, before he went through his suffering, Christ, the, the Son of God, descended and left Jesus the man. And that was just Jesus the man that was nailed to the cross. There was nothing there with God at all. It was just this. It was a man. But those three years between his baptism and the death of Jesus, he became the Christ. And John's going like, no, that's not it. The, The Christ had already been there because God said, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then when you go back to the cross, when Jesus was arrested, he was taken by the Romans and they took a a cat of nine tails and he was scourged with that as he hung from this big rock post where they whipped guys, they beat him, they scourged him. He was chained to it. His hands were like this. And that Roman soldier took that cat of nine tails and when he slung it, It would rip and it would stick into Jesus' back and he would pull it as hard as he could and he would rip the flesh off of the back of Jesus. Most people believe, most scientific people who are Christ followers would say that probably his ribs were showing. The rib bones were showing. To just simply put it this way, Jesus' back was a bloody mess. Now here's the thing about that scourging. Most people who were scourged never would live through it. They would die shortly after. The blood loss, the pain, the agony, everything. I mean, you just, right from from the back of your neck, right down to your hips, is, is weight laid wide open in the flesh. And so here we have this blood of Jesus that's being spewed out, that's being just laid out on the ground as he's being scourged. And then they took Jesus 
and they wrapped him, the Roman soldiers wrapped him in a purple cloth, which stands for royalty. And they brought him in, and they wove a crown of thorns, and they put that crown of thorns on his head, but they didn't just put it on there. They beat it in so that those three-inch-long thorns cut into the brow of Jesus, and now that blood and sweat mingled together pours down his face. And they make fun of him, and they mock him, and they beat his face until it's a bloody pulp. His eyes are probably almost swollen shut. And then they take off his purple robe, and they put him back in his own clothes, and they take him up to Skull Mountain called Golgotha. And when they get him up there, they take the nails, and they drive the nails in his wrists and in his feet, and then they put him up on the cross. And all that blood off of his back off of his brow, running down from his hands. It soaks into the wood of the cross where it can't take it anymore and then it puddles at the bottom of the cross and it is Jesus' blood that is a witness to the world that he is the Son of God and the only one who can save anybody from their sins. So when, when John says that the testimony is of the water and the blood. It is the water of his baptism where his father bestowed on him pleasure that we were so good, that he is so good that we should listen to everything he says. And then his blood mingled with his sweat and his tears soaked into the ground, cries out saying, this is the son of God. His blood was shed for you. That's the testimony. That's what John's bringing to the church because the church had lost her way. She had had gone to a place where she should have never have gone. But it's not just the water and the blood that's the testimony because notice that John says, and the Spirit is the one who testifies. The Spirit of truth. That God, God was in His wisdom He brought Jesus to the earth. He is the Son of God, born to the Virgin Mary. He is both man and God. He's not separated to where he is man at one point and God at another point. He is both man and God. It's called the hypostatic union of Christ. That's the blending of God and man together. And the reason why that is so important is because if he was just God, He would never be tempted as we are tempted and never sin. If he is just man, he can never take away our sins. And so it was the plan of God from the beginning that it would both be, Jesus would come as the incarnate Christ, both man and God, because he could be tempted and not yet sin, and then he could save us from our sins. And so he brings the Spirit, and Jesus told his disciples, as he was having the last meal with them, the last supper before he went to the cross, he said to his disciples, it is better for you that I go to heaven so that the Comforter, the Helper, the Holy promised Holy Spirit can come and be with you and in you. And it was hard for them to get wrapped around their minds that it was better for them to have the Spirit than to have Jesus in the flesh. Because Jesus was purely man, 
He could not stay on earth and accomplish what needed to be accomplished. Because of the Spirit of God being fully God, that means that He can be present in multiple places around the world at the same time. So when the Holy Spirit comes to us, He teaches us, He indwells us, He gives us strength to live and obey Jesus, He gives us everything that we need, and He does it simultaneously all around the world with everybody that that names Jesus as Savior. You are filled with the Spirit of God, each and every one of you who has bent your knee to Jesus and said, I am a poor, wretched sinner in need of a Savior. Forgive me of my sins and be my Lord. When you do that, the Spirit of God indwells you. He comes and empowers you to do the things that you could not do in the flesh. And He is the Spirit of truth. And the Spirit of truth will guide us into all truth. That's what it says in John's Gospel, chapter 16. Because the Spirit, when He comes, listen to this before I get to that verse. The Spirit... Not only does he come to teach and to guide and to comfort and to counsel. He comes to convict the world of sin. You cannot come to Christ without the Holy Spirit. But not only that, but the Holy Spirit does more than that. He's a witness of Jesus. He's the one that proclaims Jesus. He will never magnify himself. He will only magnify the Son of God. And we know that because of what John wrote in chapter 16. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus does the Holy Spirit doesn't come to glorify himself. You've you got to get this. this is, there, there is this little nuance between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so now the Holy Spirit, he resides here on earth with us. And when we start to sing the praises of God, the Holy Spirit turns that, those praises that we're singing... He turns them heavenward to the throne room where Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he says, Jesus, here is this fragrant offering of praise from your people, the church. Here it is. And he gives it to Jesus. And then Jesus takes this offering that has been given to him in the throne room of heaven and he turns to his dad and he says, Father, here it is, your people singing your praises and the Father receives the glory and he turns around and he says, Not just my glory, my son, but yours as well. And he gives it back to Jesus. And Jesus is glorified and his name is praised. And people's lives are transformed. That's the best news we could get. Because God the Holy Spirit is the first one who will ever deal with a sinner's heart. When you were lost in your sins. When you had no idea where to go. And you were completely unbelievably lost and you had no idea what it meant to be saved the Holy Spirit of God came and he started to poke you right in here and he started to say listen to my voice I'm calling you to a new place I'm calling you to repentance I'm calling you to come and to to accept the gift of Jesus the forgiveness of sin I am coming that you might live 
And he nudges us towards Jesus. And all of a sudden, our ears are unplugged. And our eyes, the scales fall off of our eyes. Our heart is stirred by the Spirit of God. And the next thing we know, we're saying yes to Jesus. And our lives are completely and 100% transformed. And we are no longer the same person we were. Because it's the work of the Spirit who comes first. And then he points us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's the one who draws us to Jesus, then teaches us spiritual truth of this new life. And then he talks about, he's the one that helps you to understand the life of Christ and the importance of his death. But on top of all of that, that, the thing that makes all of that worthwhile is his resurrection. Because without an empty tomb, it is all meaningless. I almost feel like I'm preaching Easter. It, It... God's got it. He's going to bring something. So the Holy Spirit's job is to press your heart with the truth about who Jesus is. He also enables people like me to preach the Word of God. He empowers people to live out the gospel in their homes and in their lives every day. And in this sense, the Holy Spirit is the first witness to testify to Jesus and His salvation. It's the Spirit. That's why John says in verses 7 and 8, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Amen? John goes a little bit further in his testimonies because you would think that as he has laid this out for the church, that the water and the blood and the Spirit testify about this. What else do you need as proof that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, John's not one to stop a little bit short and to leave anything undone. And so what he does in verse 9, he says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has bore concerning his Son. Now look. I can stand up here all day long and give testimony to the things that Jesus has done in my life. We could call each and every one of you up here and you could give testimony as to the things that God has done in your life, what Jesus has done for you. You could give a testimony, a witness to it. And we'd all go like, yeah, that's really great. When God gives a testimony, far more powerful than the testimony I can give. Because you think about it, the God of creation, the one who put the world in order, the one who spoke into being, the one who has done more miracles and empowers us to do things that we never thought we could do. He has a testimony about Jesus, his son. He's the one that comes and gives the testimony. There's no one that can give a greater testimony. Now, look, here's one of the issues that we all face as we think about walking in faith with Jesus. Is there are people that are going to come and give a testimony this way, and this is what it sounds like. You know what? Um, We recognize that Jesus is a great man, and he was a very good man, and he had a lot of great things to say. But 
He's not the only way. Whether you're a Buddhist or a Hindu, whether you're a Muslim, whether you're a spirit worshiper, whether you worship Mother Nature, all those roads are going to lead to the same place, up to the mountain where God resides. All religious roads lead to God. That's the message that people want us to believe. It's the same kind of nonsense that had infiltrated the church in John's time. We've got the same spirit of deception moving in and amongst churches today, telling people it's not just Jesus. It, 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 there's all paths, all religious paths lead, lead to God. <laughs> Unbelievable. We have churches in this town who don't preach Jesus only. They preach something else. And it's not from the Spirit of God. It's a different spirit. All those other religions, all they do, all they lead to is bondage. Spiritual slavery. You step into another religion and the thing that will have to happen is now you have to fulfill all the laws, all the rules, all the things, the the ceremonies. You have got to now start earning your way to make sure that you're good enough to get to God. And the problem with that religious slavery is at the end of the day when you're lying on your bed about ready to slip from this world into eternity is you don't know whether you've ever done enough to be good enough to be accepted by God. And that's why Jesus made the declaration, I, Jesus said, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one gets to the Father except through me. That's the truth, that's the declaration, that is not religion, that is relationship with Jesus. And that's what he's calling us to. And that's the testimony that God has given about his son. He's the one that has, has come behind that and enforced it. Now, God has this free gift. Okay, let me just step back just a second. Every human being that walks on planet Earth has an eternal destiny waiting for them. It is either going to be eternal life or it is going to be eternal death. There's no middle ground on this. You can't go to some place that's neutral, like Switzerland. (laughs) There's no spiritual Switzerland where you get to go hang out and go like, it's all cool here because we don't take sides. Well, uh, the Bible makes it really clear that you've taken a side. If you say yes to Jesus, you've taken God's side. If If you don't say anything, just by saying nothing, you have taken the enemy's side. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're, for, or you're against me. There's no middle ground. And so everybody has an eternal destiny waiting for them. It is either going to be life with God, we call that heaven, that's eternal life with God, or it's going to be eternal life without God. And that, my friends, not being in the presence or having the influence of God in our lives, nobody on planet Earth has ever experienced that. 
You only experience that after you die. And then it's too late. So right now, all people, people who love Jesus and people who do not love Jesus, they all have life right now because of the grace that God has poured out on all people. It'll rain on the just and the unjust alike. God's blessing of life, air, breathing, heart beating, is by the grace of God to every human being. You remove God out of the equation, and you don't have that. You have death. And so God's given us this eternal free gift. It comes through faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and trusting Him as our Lord. This gift is eternal life, and God has made it clear that there's only one way to get it. Now, the big part for us is we think about eternity and eternal life, and we think of quantity. It's a very long time. (laughs) It goes on and on and on and on and on. And sometimes you can get that thought in your head that, I'm going to be sitting in church for a thousand years. Yikes. No, yeah, not something, not something that you, you, that's not. We don't have to go to church when we're in heaven. We will be the church in heaven, and we will be in the presence of God 24-7, so we don't need to gather like this. We're going to gather together for meals. We're going to have a banquet, and we're going to have the bestest and the greatest of meats ever served. We're going to have the sweetest of wine. We're going to have the freshest vegetables. Anything your heart desires. That is going to be glory with God. But it, and that is what points to the quality of eternity. It's living life like you have never lived life before. When you step out of this life and you go into the presence of Jesus, you are going to think to yourself, What was I doing for the last 75 years? That was nonsense. I am living like I have never lived life before. I'm experiencing Jesus like I've never experienced him before. I have greater understanding of who I am, and I am called a child of God. You will live like you've never lived before. That is why when we come to verses 11 and 12. Did I hit verse 10, Jesse? Well, just throw it up there real quick so they can see it, so they know I'm not just messing around. Don't make God out to be a liar. That's basically what it says. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, you're trying to tell God he's a liar. Liar, liar, pants on fire. is isn't going to set well with, with the, our Father. He's going like, son, daughter, you need to pay attention because this is the truth. Now let's go to 11 and 12. That was quick. Um. And this is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life. And this life is in his son. Now we have the twins, the whoevers. Whoever has the son has life. And his twin brother, whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. You know, there's not a whole lot that I really need to say about that. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. It's like the bulletin, right? I'm not reading you the bulletin because why would I read? Look. There's not a lot I need to say in regard to this. But here's, I'm just going to give this little bit for you, okay? God the Father has revealed Jesus Christ to us. And Jesus is the final word on everything. 
And the final word is that we can say with confidence, because we have Jesus, we have been given freedom to live life with the knowledge of the hope that we have in Jesus is going to bring us into eternity with God, eternal life. Quantity and quality all wrapped up in one thing. And the best news is we could ever receive is that because of Jesus and Him being the final word, that brings us life. And this life flows from the Father to the Son, through the Son, into us when we believe the gospel. Eternal life is not about us being good, but about Jesus being God. We would all agree that whoever has the Son has life. I don't think anybody in this room would argue with it. And that's the truth that we bank on. We bank on the fact and the knowledge that the Spirit of God confirms with our spirit that we have the Son of God. We would all say, Amen and praise the Lord. Right? Because that's where we're going to go. Or, you know, our new word in, in church, praise hallelujah. And we have Jesus. And we know that. But I believe there's a subtle shift that needs to take place in our thinking. And it comes from asking a simple question about us and Jesus. And here's the question. Remember, we already said we have the Son of God. So the question is, not do you have Jesus, but does Jesus have you? Does Jesus have you? Or, or have you just kind of given him a little bit of you? Jesus wants all of you. He wants you to be submissive to his will. Listen, this isn't burdensome. We talked about this last week. It's not a heavy burden to submit my will to the will of Jesus. Because when I do that, then I'm going to know true freedom in what it means to live for Jesus. He's not going to enforce rules and regulations in a religious sense. What he says is, if you love me, you'll obey me. Does Jesus have you? We're getting ready and we're going to move right into communion. And the question that I want you to ponder, the thing, it's that question. I want you to ask Jesus of the Holy Spirit this question. Is there a part of me that you don't have that you want? Is there a part of me that I'm keeping from you and you want it? Does Jesus have all of you?